This week, we will dive into the second chapter of Judges. And before we do, I want to say two preliminary things to sort of introduce and give context to our sermon before I uh, really sermonize this thing. The first thing that we need to understand is that this passage is a companion to the first passage that I preached. Judges chapter 2, 6 through uh, about chapter 3, verse 6 is a second introduction. The first introduction that we read last week, beginning at, of course, the very beginning of the book until the end of, uh, until chapter 2, verse 5, focused primarily on physical borders and territories, introducing us, the readers, to unfinished conquest of the promised land by an unfaithful people. This second introduction, however, is less about uh, conquest and territory and more about people and their relationship to God. This is a spiritual introduction. This is a theological introduction. It's a companion to the first, intended to help us understand the roots of Israel's unfaithfulness. That's the first thing we need to understand. The second thing that I think we'll see in this book that we might flesh out in discipleship groups is that the content of this chapter provides an outline for the rest of the book that will be repeated over and over and over. It establishes a sort of pattern. We see the people sin. We see God give them over to the consequences of their sin, followed then by God graciously raising up judges to save them from the consequences of their sin, which look like enemy conquest of them. Then we see them go right back into sin. So picture a sort of spiral that we see in the text. People sin. There are consequences to their sin. God loves them, has mercy on them, shows compassion, and raises up a leader to save them from their sin. They follow that leader. Eh. The leaders. Eh. Eventually the leader dies and they go right back into sin. And the spiral continues and continues. So what is the point of this theological introduction? What does this spiritual introduction teach us about the spiritual state of God's people? Underneath the cowardice and compromise and unfinished conquest, what is wrong? What's the bottom line problem? The underlying condition, the foundational sin, I think it's simple, and I think it's telling, because I think their deepest problems are some of ours today. This morning, I just want us to see two fundamental issues and consider the extent to which those issues may present themselves in our own lives. Here are two foundational, fundamental problems in the spiritual life of God's people. First, they did not know the true God. They did not know the true God. And second, they worshiped false gods. They did not know the true God, and second, they worshiped false gods. We'll spend the next several minutes thinking about these two things. The title of this sermon is True God, and false gods. Look with me in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. 
and Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Hares, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. We talked about Joshua last week. The writer of Judges brings him up again in this second introduction. Verse 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. What better way to be known than servant of the Lord? You're going to have a lot of titles in this life. You can chase a lot of titles. President, pastor, teacher, doctor, coach, father, mother, boss. But none of them come close to servant of the Lord. Joshua, the servant of the Lord, as he's remembered, is buried in the land of the promise. Joshua is not portrayed as a man without flaws. Scripture only portrays one man this way, of course, the God-man, Jesus, the Christ. But the scriptures present Joshua positively. He is presented as a servant of the Lord, which while he led the people, verse 7, serve the Lord. This is what servants of the Lord do. They lead others by serving the Lord and others serve the Lord. And there's a little point here that I want to draw out just before we move too far ahead. Ministry effectiveness is not measured by popularity. Ministry effectiveness is not measured by popularity. It is measured by the faithfulness of the followers. It is measured by the faithfulness of the followers. So in other words, like it does no good if we have an ever-increasing number of people coming into this room and hearing me preach and I get really proud because all these people want to listen to my sermons. But the people who listen to my sermons aren't actually following Jesus. If that's the case, then I'm a, I'm a bad leader. I have missed the mark. I have missed the point entirely. Servants of the Lord help others serve the Lord. We must not get that twisted. We must not settle for popularity as a marker of success. Nothing less than following the Lord will do. But Joshua is dead, and so is the whole generation that followed him. And there arose another generation after them that did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And this begs the question, why didn't they? Who is to blame for this new generation rising who does not know the Lord? Did Joshua's generation or the elders that followed him not pass on the living faith? Or was the new generation just completely disinterested in it? I'm not so sure the question is, is easy to answer. I'm not sure it's a black and white question. We do have a hint in verse 16 later, which I'll just go ahead and pluck here. They soon turned aside from the Lord, from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. But here's what is clear. God commands his people to remember his saving works. A cursory reading of the Old Testament you find all sorts of festivals and memorials and sacrifices and customs, and all of them are intended to do one thing. Proclaim what God has done and teach it to the next generation. To teach the story of God, the living God, who saves his people from sin. 
Consider this famous passage from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You will bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Here's what he's saying. You will write the word of the Lord everywhere. You'll talk about it when you rise. You'll talk about it when you lie down. You'll talk about it when you're lounging. You'll talk about it when you're walking. You'll put it on your door. You'll put it on your gates. You'll put it on your eyes. You'll put it on your hands. You will do whatever you gotta do to remember Remember that the Lord is one. The Lord is our God, and the Lord has saved us from bondage. Continuing on in Deuteronomy 6. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord has commanded you? In other words, when your son comes to you and says, why do we eat this at this festival? Why do we go here for this event? Why do we say these things? Why do we do these things? Why do we live this way? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And the Lord, he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do the commandments before the Lord our God, which he has commanded of us. This is why you'll tell your children, he says. So not just, oh, just do it. I don't really know why your grandma did it and her grandma did it and everyone just did it. But this is what you'll tell the Lord. That the Lord is our salvation, that he saved us from Pharaoh. He saved us from Egypt. He delivered us into a land that he promised to our fathers. And it's to our good that we do these things. That God is our creator, he's our deliverer, and he knows what's best for us. And so our hope, our salvation, our joy, our peace, our rest, all these things are found in obedience to him. It's for our good that we follow these statutes. Because look what God has done. So we're confronted with a question, was the previous generation faithful to do these things? Maybe, maybe. Parents, you know more than us young parents that simply sharing the gospel with your child guarantees nothing. And let me encourage you with this, parents. If the generation after Joshua didn't get it, then have some grace for yourself. It's possible that they kept the commandments, they observed the feasts, they did the stuff, they told the story, but the next generation was simply disinterested. Because doing these things does not mean you will definitely pass on the faith. But for our intents and purposes, it's the only shot you really have. It's possible that somewhere along the way, somebody neglected the idea behind Deuteronomy 6. It's possible that at some point, someone, somewhere, didn't model and teach the faith to the next generation. If you don't model and teach the faith, then there is almost no way, barring a miracle, that here, living in a land with many gods, 
the faith in the one true God will live on in the next generation. And I think this is a relevant point for us. The next generation can tell what really matters to you. The next generation can tell what really matters to us. One generation is committed. The next, a little less. The next, a little less. Allegiance fades to apathy, and apathy fades to apostasy. Allegiance fades to apathy, and apathy leads to apostasy. Before God's people knelt the need of false gods, as we'll see in just a moment, they lost interest in worshiping the true God. False gods are really only appealing when you don't know the real one. I want to ask you a question, church. What sort of faith do you have? Because whatever sort of faith you have is the sort of faith that you are passing on. And so what sort of faith do you have? We might be able to answer that question more fully with some diagnostic questions. So I have three diagnostic questions to help you answer that question for yourself because no one else can answer it for you. Your mom can't answer it for you. Your dad can't answer it for you. Your pastor certainly can't answer it for you. And your kids can't answer it for you. Consider whether your faith is passonable or as some might say, whether it's, uh, it's sticky or not. A first question might be, is your faith authentic? Is your faith authentic? Now, not in the sense of it's your self-expression, but here's what I'm asking. Do you know the true God or do you just know about him? Do you know the true God or do you just know about him? Like this morning at church, are you here because from your perspective you should be? Or are you seeking to wholeheartedly follow the Lord your God? Is your faith authentic? Have you experienced his presence and power in your life? Or are you just sort of going through the motions? In other words, do you believe the gospel? Not just do you think the gospel is true? Do you think Jesus of Nazareth really lived, really died, really rose? Of course, those questions are important, but I'm not asking if they are true factually. I'm asking if you believe them to be true. If you, by faith, believe that Jesus, Son of God, lived the perfect life, died in your place, rose from the grave, then everything has changed. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe your sins have been forgiven? Do you believe that Jesus has paid your debt? Is your faith authentic? Is it vital? Is it personal? Is it real? The second question. Is your faith practical? Is your faith practical? Here's what I mean by that. Does your faith affect your life in tangible ways? Does it affect your job? Does it affect your relationships? Does it affect your decisions about where you live, how you spend your time, who you spend your time with, how you spend your money, what you study, what you want out of life? Is your faith practical? Put simply, does it touch your life in ways that are real, in ways that are tangible, in ways that others see, or is it just purely theoretical? Is it purely academic? Is your faith authentic? Second, is your faith practical? And the third question that I think we should ask is, are you thoughtful about your faith? Are you thoughtful about your faith? Listen, everyone is not 
thank the Lord, an academic theologian. But all of us are called to love the Lord with our minds. You don't have to be a big reader or an academic or somebody who posts Instagram pictures of coffee shops and books to know the content of the Bible, to understand Christian doctrine and to apply it to your life. Like we're all supposed to do that. And here's a, 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 just a, a quick point. If we don't do that at church or in the fellowship of the church, like where is it going to happen? We should be growing in our understanding of the faith. We should be growing in our understanding of the faith. We should come to understand Christian doctrines, understand how those doctrines impact our life. Brother, sister, your comfort zone is a dangerous place to be. Your comfort zone is a dangerous place to be. Good things don't happen to God's people when they walk in their comfort zone. Again, let me be clear. There is no guarantee that the generation after us will stay faithful to the living God. But man, I want to give them the best shot possible. Brother, sister, do you know God? Or do you just know about him? Is your faith authentic? Is it practical? Is it thoughtful? Because I think if there are holes in any of those three places, that little bit of compromise will bear bad fruit. The sins of one generation are amplified in the next. Do you know the living God in a real, vibrant, dynamic way? That is at the heart of following Jesus. <laughs> Do you know the living God? Oh, for there arose in that day a generation who did not know the Lord their God. Look with me in verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm for, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Here's why those questions I said a moment ago are so foundational but so simple and so basic. Because if you don't know the living God, you will turn to false gods. If you don't worship the living God, you will worship false gods. Worship is inevitable. The only question is its direction. Worship is inevitable. We are worshipers, all of us. The only question is who we will worship, what we will worship. When we lose sight of the living God, we turn to false gods. A brief word might be helpful here about just the nature of pagan gods, be it Baal, uh, whomever. Pagan gods 
were thought to rule over a particular sphere of life. So you might have a god of the harvest, uh, which is particularly important in an agrarian world. You might have a god of fertility. You might have a god of family, a god of um, general economic activity, sort of the roots of business, right? And so pagan gods would, would rule over a sphere of life. They were imagined by their people to have power over, and the people needed to manipulate those gods to get what they wanted out of those gods for success in that arena of life. So if you want to have a baby, you better figure out how to make the gods of fertility happy. And if you want to make the gods of fertility happy, you better do whatever is prescribed by the priest of that god that that god likes. Because the pagan gods are moody gods. They just act capriciously. They reward you or punish you for trivial things. And so imagine a world with all kinds of gods who have authority over all different spheres of life. And this is where I think we can misunderstand Israel and their condition uh, if we don't understand a little bit of this pagan theology. In other words, bowing to false gods in Israel's day was not a purely theological act it was not disconnected from their daily life. This is what it's like. People who worship Baal live right there. And everyone right there believes that the rain will not come unless, I'm just being general here, I'm not actually saying this is what they believed and did. It was in this pattern. People right there believe Baal. And Baal will be in charge of the rain. And so we better make Baal happy. Why? Because we need rain. Well, why do we need rain? Because we need crops. Why do we need crops? Because we need to survive. So idolatry was not as we often think about it when we're looking back in, in the Bible or in history. Idolatry is not just a spiritual exercise. It's not just religious disconnected from life. The people of God are trying to live in a land with many gods, and those many gods controlled all these spheres of life, and the people around them are telling them that if they will be successful, if they will live, if they will thrive, they must worship these false gods. Idolatry was not theoretical, idolatry was practical. And this is at the heart of the conquest. That God is creating a land where there are no false gods, where the people of Israel will live and worship the one true God, and the humanity will not be in bondage to these gods who overpromise and underdeliver. But that what would happen is through the hand of God, the judgment of God would come to the pagan nations. The people of God would set up residence and that all the surrounding nations who have been driven out would see that the living God of Israel is not like their gods. The living God of Israel is gracious. The living God of Israel acts justly. The living God of Israel is not moody. And the whole idea was that the living God of Israel would be seen and worshipped that the nations would come and worship the living God. But the Israelites will become tempted and they'll succumb to that temptation to supplement their worship of Yahweh with other gods. Because after all, why not? Why not? I want a baby. 
I might as well just say, I still worship God, but I'll go ahead and do whatever I got to do over here to the God of fertility because you know what? You never know. You might be right. What do we have to lose? The book of Judges is an answer to that question. What do you have to lose? Everything. The people of Israel are unique because they serve the living God. Oh, he's taught them that all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. They have no power. In fact, to make sure that his people were not tempted to worship these gods, what is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Worshiping the gods of the nations is not only frivolous, it's a violation of the first commandment. And it's not only a violation of the first commandment, it's a, it's a violation of a loving covenant. A covenant the Lord likens to a marriage. The people of God did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What was it that was evil in the sight of the Lord? Worshiping false gods. This is a deep and personal betrayal. If you look with me in verse 16 and 17, the text likens the people of Israel to a prostitute. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commands of the Lord, and they did not do so. The Lord is angry because he loves his people. He cares about them. His anger is not like our anger. It's holy, it's pure and righteous. This anger is not in opposition to his love. It rises from his love. This is important, friends. God does not merely want us to obey him as a sovereign king alone or just follow all his rules because he makes the best rules, even though he does. But even more than those things, he wants us to know him and love him sincerely and intimately. He wants us to know him and love him sincerely and intimately. So bowing the knee to Baal, worshiping the gods of the nations, is not just a transgression of the law code, like speeding or tax fraud, if you want to have some real fun. It's not uh, just breaking rules. But bowing the knee to Baal is like cheating on a faithful spouse. Bowing the knee to Baal is like cheating on a faithful spouse. So the question that I have for us is, do we bow the knee to Baal? Well, probably not Baal, per se. But we live in a land with many gods. The land in which we live and move and have our being is not so different from the ancient Canaanite land. You see, every Israelite had to determine for himself or herself a simple question. Will I obey the living God or will I bow the knee to the gods of this world? A whole generation would choose wrongly. We are faced with a similar question. Will I obey and serve and love Jesus as one who's been saved by him, redeemed by him, restored by him, and joined to him in a loving union? Or will I serve the gods of the nations? Just like the Israelites, when God would raise up a judge and his authority would be on that judge, they had to decide, are we gonna listen to the judge and do what he says is right because this is God's authority over us? 
Or are we going to rebel against that judge and do what the nations say is right, do what is popular, do what's comfortable, do what's convenient, do what will help me be successful, do what's good in my own eyes? For in those days, there was no king in Israel. And what? And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Just like the ancient Israelites had to answer that question, each person, each man, each woman, each per every family had to decide, will we listen to the judge, will we listen to the living God, or will we listen to ourselves? Will we listen to the nations around us? In the same way, we are faced with that fundamental question. I think this spiritual and theological introduction poses to us fundamental questions of faith. Oh, Jesus will be the one who has Lord and King over all and Lord and King over our lives. Will we listen to him? Will we listen to Jesus? Will we obey Jesus? Will we do what he says? Will we worship him alone? Will we die to ourselves? Or will we listen to the seductive message of the gods of the land? Messages of prosperity, messages of comfort, messages of belonging, and when we bow the knee to these false gods, oh, we live in a land with many gods. Every day people wake up and obey the God of money. They do whatever they gotta do to get more and more. Every day in this land people wake up and obey the God of success. They so desperately want others to respect them to leave their mark on the world, feel like they've done something with their lives. Oh, every day people wake up and obey the God of comfort, choosing not to sacrificially serve God in the world around them, choosing instead to be served, to exert as little effort as possible. Every day people wake up and obey the God of sex, obeying it outside the context of the way God has called us to enjoy it and refusing to live with those realities. You may not be tempted to build an altar in your house to Buddha. I mean, some of you may, I don't know. But the idols of our culture are crying out for your devotion. Worship team, you guys can come on up. The message of Judges chapter 2, I think, is, is pretty simple. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to serve? I, think about your heart for just a moment. As the promised land. And think about all the idols. What's an idol? Let me just put it briefly as possible. Anything that you put before God is an idol. So the things that you put, the things that call the shots in your life, the things that drive you, the things that wake you up in the morning, these are the things you're serving. And so it's imperative that we make that thing the right thing that we make that thing the living God. The living God is the one who wakes us up in the morning. The living God calls us out. I'll never forget my freshman year of college at Davidson. I was um, ambitious. Uh, I was excited to go and prove myself to this uh, good school and all these great students. And there was a, there was a, a, a girl in my class uh, named Katie, of course, uh, who was really sharp. She was really smart. It was a writing class. And I remember she was bragging about how she went to this fancy prep school and how everything was so easy for her at Davidson. And, oh, I went here, so I'm going to get this A. And I remember just like, 
that like West Virginia, you know, that sort of like us against the world mentality that comes up every now and then. I remember like feeling that, like, oh, I'm going to show her, man. I'm going to show her that her fancy prep school, that I got a PhD, Polka High Diploma, and it's just as good. And I remember like really being motivated. Now I, I, I was telling my my RA, who was a Christian, and we'll see in just a moment, I was telling him, like, man, I'm really motivated in this class because this girl from this fancy prep school was telling us how easy it was, and I'm going to, like, I am going to get a better grade than her because I'm going to show her that, like, Polka High School is awesome, you know? And I remember him, like, not thinking that was a good idea. I was like, what do you mean? He said, hey, yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying, but I would just encourage you, like, not to be motivated by that. I was like, what do you mean don't be motivated by that? That's how we win, right? He's like, no, don't be motivated by like proving her wrong or proving yourself right. That's a bad, bad motivation. Just be faithful and and do your best. And I realized that there are sneaky gods in our life. There are things that can motivate us and call the shots in our life that are not good, not helpful. And if we're not careful, Just like the ancient Israelites, in the name of success, in the name of progress, in the name of what have you, we can begin to worship false gods. Here's an excerpt from a book we gave our leaders to help them parse through this text in discipleship groups. The promised land was meant to be a place of worship for the Lord alone. It became the Lord plus. The promised land was supposed to be a place for worship of God alone. It became a place of worship of God plus. The people's failure to take all of Canaan resulted from and represented their failure to give God exclusive lordship over their whole lives. It's not hard to see how this might happen today as we live in a pagan world that offers us all sorts of other gods. The greatest danger, because it's so subtle, which enables us to continue as church members and think nothing's wrong, is not that we become atheists, it's that we ask God to coexist with the idols in our heart. You, church member, me, church member, we are not really, I mean, kind of in danger of just doing a 180 and saying, I no longer believe there's order in the universe. I no longer believe there's a creator. I no longer believe in God. I no longer believe in Jesus. Like some will do that. But what happens for most people is that instead of that wholesale rejection, the living God begins to, we're at, we begin to ask the living God to share the throne of our hearts, to share it with success, share it with money, Share it with family. A lot of these things are good things, by the way. But when good things become God things, good things become bad things. We ask the living God to share the throne of our heart. And then before you know it, we are doing this whole thing that Israel did. The living God plus. When the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel is the living God alone. So look into your heart. Think of it like the promised land with all these idols vying for your worship and ask yourself this morning, do I know and remember and treasure and cherish the living God? And will I follow him alone? Will I join Jesus in his mission of crushing those idols for my own good and for his glory? At the cross of Jesus Christ, the Lord God 
disarm the rulers and principalities of darkness. He has defeated sin and death and hell. And he invites you to march triumphantly through the promised land of your own heart, allowing no false gods stay. Two simple questions in conclusion. Do you know the Lord your God? Is your faith authentic, practical, and thoughtful? And second, it's pretty simple. Will you follow him alone? Holly and I rewatched our wedding the other day for our five years uh, anniversary. The lady didn't film the end, so that was kind of a bummer. But you know, when you're saying your vows, you don't say like, I pledge myself to you and your friends. <laughs> I pledge myself to you and you alone. That's the sort of relationship God has with us. We pledge ourselves to him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, it's so interesting to look back at a time so long ago and see the same fundamental temptations that we face in this day. A temptation to forget you. A temptation to lose interest. To quit telling and believing the story. The gospel story. This temptation to compromise. A temptation to do whatever we gotta do to get ahead, be successful, be comfortable. Help us, Lord, know you and treasure you deeply. And Lord, may that be our offensive attack against the idols of our hearts. Help us follow you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.